turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I've, uh, it's not very original, but I've titled today The Ministry of Reconciliation. We've, we heard last week about the purposes of the law, um, what it's supposed to do for us. Um, we heard this morning about Paul, um, or Paul is telling us why we should trust the Word of God. And, and this is really targeted to why specifically we should trust the Gospel. Why it is our message and it's our ministry entrusted to us by God for those around us. So I'm going to start in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 um, in, verses, in verse 16, go to verse 21. Um, we're going to go back and survey a couple earlier chapters. And so we're going to start in this text and hopefully, Lord willing, end in this text. And so I'm going to read it through these five verses and then we'll, we'll pray. Starting in verse 16. From now on, therefore... We regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to Himself not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. If you'd bow with me, Father... I thank you for um, this time today that we have to worship you. Lord, I pray as that last song um, sang to you and requested of you that you would show us Christ through the preaching of your word. God, that you've entrusted a, a, a precious treasure in your word and in the gospel and you've placed it within fragile jars of clay. Lord, I, if it be your will, God, I pray that you would allow me to preach clearly um, to preach openly of the truth that you've given us, that you would reveal your glory through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, I'm going to kind of piecemeal this out a little bit. Um, And so, we're starting in 16. I want to read 16 and 17. It says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. So this is a pretty, this is one of those things that you could call a coffee cup verse. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. And we're very familiar with that, but maybe not as familiar with the, the circumstances, the occasion, or the context associated with the verse. But this statement that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, um, it, it's an inference from or, or a development of the statement that Paul just made before, that from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. That even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. So there is, there is a mindset or a perception for Christians that have been changed by the Gospel in the way that the Christian views the people around him, the way that the Christian views the world around him. There's a spiritual viewpoint that it's from knowing the fear of the Lord, as Paul says in verse 11. 
It's a viewpoint that does not boast in or regard someone according to external or outward appearances. Um, as in 13, it said um, that many of the false apostles in Corinth did. This perception seeks to look past the mere outward displays and professions of faith that someone would make and discern the heart. Just as what Paul and his, his fellow ministers says here in verse 12 or verse 11 that they are known to God. Um, this word known, it, it, it's really more of a revealed, made clear. Um, the, the motivations of Paul's heart, the motivation of his fellow ministers is known. What they are before God is known. And what we are before God is a much deeper and more important truth, more important perception than the way that we appear outwardly toward men. So, in the, in the flesh, in, not according to the Spirit, we would look at someone and we'd regard them as, as a banker or a farmer or an accountant or lawyer or a doctor. Um, what we see white and black, Asian or Native American, and those distinctions have their place, but they're not according to the Spirit. Um, so really, there's, there's two realities, two groups that we would see um, with this gospel mindset toward the world. And that's simply sinner or saved, lost or found in Christ or not in Christ. And it's out of that statement here that he says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. So we're encouraged and really commanded by the Word of God to, to reach beyond the outward airs that someone would put up about themselves and address the heart. That we look past our own outward understanding of somebody and address the heart. Um, just as Christ was once regarded according to the flesh, how, how did Paul view Christ according to the flesh before his conversion? Well, he viewed Christ as a heretic, a false teacher, a madman, when Christ was actually the Son of God, the Messiah. And so what matters most in this life, on our behalf and for those that we come across, is whether someone is in Christ or not in Christ. I mean, what does it mean to be in Christ? We, we know that the outworking of that, that, the result of that, is that someone is a new creation. But the phrase in Christ is woven throughout Paul's writings. He wrote about a third of the New Testament. And it's in pretty much all of his accounts, all of his letters. We have brothers or sisters in Christ, churches in Christ. There's blessings to be had or to be found in Christ. And really what this phrase represents, it summarizes our entire experience of redemption. To be in Christ is to have union with Christ. It's the result of the gospel changes wrought in us. To be Christ, the Bible tells us, is to be redeemed by Christ. Someone who is in Christ was foreknown by God. Before the world began, Romans 8 tells us, they were elected or called by God for salvation. Ephesians 1 tells us, they were indwelled and sanctified by the Holy Spirit upon their justification. 1 Corinthians 1, they will be glorified with Christ. Romans 8 or 2 Corinthians 3, to be in Christ, Romans 7 tells us, is to be united with Christ in His death on the cross. To be to, to die to the law of sin and death, to be set free from that and to be raised with Christ in His resurrection. Simply put, to be in Christ is to be saved. And Paul tells us to be a new creation. If you are in Christ, you're not merely saved from wrath, but you are changed. 
You are not the same. You no longer live for yourself. It says here in verse 15 that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but those but live for those for whom their sake died and was raised. What you were, a wretched sinner, and what you had, the fruit of your own sin culminating in death, the old has itself passed away. And behold, the new has come. Your old self and your ways were worth less, and they've been replaced with Christ who is worthy. The old had nothing to offer God, and the new, Paul tells us, is from God. Here in verse 18, it says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So I'm sure you've heard Randy um, preached through Romans 11 and Romans 12. I've, I've taught that on an equipping hour here before. But in Romans 11:36, it tells us that all things that we've received in Christ are from Him, meaning, meaning God, to Him, or through Him and to Him. That the whole plan of salvation and history of redemption, our union with a new creation in Christ, all of it finds its origin its plan, its affectation, or its, its, its actual work, and its culmination in God. Before the world was made, we were given as, as Christ's people from, to Christ from the Father. There's a sense in which all of the redeemed are a gift from the Father to the Son. It's an act of love within the Trinity. That, that we, we become part of this love or relationship within the Trinity and that God gives His people to the Son, from one person of the Trinity to another. We were known by God long before our lives began. We were called by God, and at some point in our lives, if you're in Christ, you were told the Gospel by someone that was sent to you. You were told the good news of Christ, and you were given faith from God in which to place in Christ. The very faith that you place in Christ is faith that God supplied All of this is from God. All of these things that we praise God for, the theme of all of our our praises this morning, but there's something even more than this, more than just being cleansed of our sins that we celebrate. And, And it really is the ultimate goal of our redemption. And that's that through Christ, God reconciled us to Himself. And He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So God has done more for us than acquit us of our sins. He's given us more than allowing us to see our loved ones again if they're in Christ. He's given us more than just a hope of of living forever in a place called heaven that's supposedly better than here. Um, The ultimate goal of redemption exceeds all of those things. That's not God's primary concern for you. Um, All of those things are benefits, but they're peripheral benefits. They're side effects of God's true work. He has reconciled you to Himself. He, he's, he's made you right with Him. And this reconciliation implies an alienation. I love how Spurgeon put it. He says, There has been a long-standing quarrel between God and man. It commenced in that day when our first parents hearkened to the serpent's voice and believed the devil rather than their maker. Yet God is not willing for that quarrel to continue According to the goodness of his nature, he delights in love. 
God is he is the God of peace and he has on his part prepared everything that is needful for a perfect reconciliation. His glorious wisdom has devised a plan whereby without violating his justice as judge of all the earth and tarnishing his perfect holiness, he can meet man upon the ground of mercy and man can again become the friend of God. God's redemptive plan um, this this reconciliation, this this message, this gospel, does not begin and end with the proclamation of his morality, what he requires of us in order to be made right with God. Um, it, it, it begins much before that, and it goes much after just the law of God. Nor is his redemptive plan some sort of truce by which God and man mutually agree to cease hostilities. It's not something where he's, he's done his part and he's no longer angry at you and he's just waiting for you to no longer be angry at him. Unless we are in Christ, um, there is only one reality for us that we are at war with God. And because God is our enemy, our total destruction is assured. Apart from Christ, we have, hope, we have no hope of anything but eternal defeat. Eternal torment, just and divine retribution for our sins in hell. But God voluntarily ends the war with us by making a way without help or contribution from us to reconcile us to himself, to count our sins as paid, our trespasses as no more, as the, as the word says, to avert the holy hatred that he has for us in our sin, not just on our sin, but on us in our sin. And also to change the hatred that we have for Him. Not only that, but His love and His mercy, they overwhelm our defenses. And He changes us from the inside out. We are new creations. It's not just a change of mind, it is a new mind. It's not just a change of heart, it's a new heart. God has made peace with us through Christ by appeasing His own wrath on our sin. A wrath that we could never appease. A wrath that we could never figure out or solve um, with a perfect substitute in Jesus. God shows Himself, as um, I believe that, that song said, to be both the just and the justifier of those who put their faith in Christ. That He punishes sin and He makes a way to redeem us. He does both. There's no help or contribution from us, but it doesn't even end there. Peace with God or simply just a lack of hostility with God is not the aim of redemption. And it's only a part of what's implied in reconciliation. So that word reconciliation, it's really only found in Paul's writings. And I'm going to try to pronounce the Greek here. Forgive me, Paul or Randy. But katalaye, in the Greek, it expresses not only the act of ending hostility, um, but actually like a state of relationship, a mending of broken relationship, a, a familiar term where, where justification, like how we're made righteous before God, how, how we're no longer counted sinful. That, that's more of a legal term. We're no longer accountable under the law for our sin. But reconciliation is a family word. It's a word by which we're brought in so much more than just no longer being accountable to the judge. Our reconciliation culminates not only in peace, but adoption. As Romans 8 tells us, He's given us the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The judge doesn't just remove our fine and our penalty for sin, but He adopts us and He brings us home. 
But there's yet one more amazing thing that God has done for us in Christ. And that, that doesn't all eclipse what we've received, but it is in addition to it. He has entrusted to us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. So God has given us both adoption and employment. He's given us both a family and work to do. Good works set apart beforehand for us, as Ephesians 1 tells us. He's entrusted us with the very message that brought us to God. The very thing that saved us, He has now given us to care for and to steward and to take to other people. And in fact, this too is the grace and the goodness of God. It's His provision in our life. And it's this, this ministry that we've been entrusted with is one of the reasons, and I would say one of the primary reasons, why we are not just instantly sanctified when we come to Christ and transported to heaven. I think, as, as Randy has mentioned before, with, with progressive sanctification, that much change at one time would probably kill us. Um, but more than that, there's a purpose for us living here. More than just our progressive sanctification. That is, that is a glorious reality that we look to. But there's something else, and that's the ministry of reconciliation. God has chosen to use His people, His people that He has given to the Son, to bring a ministry or a service to the people around us, to the world, and indeed to every tribe and tongue and nation, as he's promised in his scriptures. And I love what Spurgeon noted in a sermon over this passage. God could have given this ministry to the angels, probably much more faithful servants of his than we are. Much more um, authoritative servants than us. He could have given it to the archangels or to the cherubim or the seraphim. Um, it, it, it's, it's this mystery, it tells us, that angels have longed to look into. They'd be lining up to, to be able to take the gospel to mankind. They would love that. They would love to serve the Lord in that way. Um, and they'd probably um, draw a lot more attention, command a lot more respect than we would if, if everybody didn't run away in terror. Um, but God thought it best to entrust the message of reconciliation between God and man to human beings, to take to other human beings. He chose to send partakers or recipients of his reconciliation to go commend that same reconciliation to others. We are, as reconciled people, to go to every person, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, and tell them of what we have received from God and what they can receive from God by faith in Christ. We've been given something of extreme value to offer to the world. And its value does not depend on its reception from the world. Its value is not dependent on its popularity or its perceived relevancy. Its value is imbued by God. And I can, without a moment's hesitation, say that reconciliation to God is God's glorifying goal of creation in human history. It is the point. It's the theme of what we live and what we do and what we say. And it should be the, the pervading characteristic of our mindset toward other people. Have they been reconciled to God? Or are they at war with God? The gospel, Romans 1 tells us, was promised in the law. That it's not something contrary to the law, but as Matthew 5 says with Jesus' life, it's the fulfillment of the law. The law's purpose is to set up the ministry of reconciliation. 
It's to be used in tandem with it. Um, The message of reconciliation is is really the other side of that law and gospel coin that we've heard a lot about in our in our church recently. It, It is the catalyst of the obedience of faith because it brings faith that faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But the ministry and message of reconciliation was not entrusted to us again because God needs help in accomplishing the task. He didn't need anything from us to save us, and he doesn't need anything from us to save other people. Um, He he didn't need anything um, from us, our our permission to instill belief in our hearts, and he doesn't need that when we preach the gospel to others. The message of reconciliation and our responsibility as stewards of it is itself a gift to us for our good. The message itself is the driving force for the ministry. Um, We don't go and proclaim this message in order to please God, in order to make God more pleased with us, in order to earn our salvation or earn God's favor. We do it because the message itself is what we receive, because the message itself is glorious. And and this is really what I want to get to today. Um, There are two deep and abiding reasons to both trust the simple gospel and to proclaim it faithfully. Um, and those reasons are, one, the glory of the gospel itself. How this message is, is, uh, is unlike anything else that we've seen or heard in all of human history. That it is by far the best message that could ever be told. That you have nothing better to say, nothing better to believe, nothing better to think about. Um, and then secondly, that we have the love of Christ or the gospel applied to us. We have the glory of the gospel itself that drives our ministry. And then we have the gospel applied to our own hearts. Um, And so I want to look at those in the in the order that I've laid them out. So first, the the glory of the gospel. So Justin preached last week about the purposes of the law, how how just because um, it can't be used for salvation doesn't mean it has no value. I I think, as he put it, um, just because you can't eat it doesn't mean it's not gold. I mean, it has a value and a purpose. And that purpose, as we saw last week, is is as a revealer, a magnifier, and even even something that increases our sin. And then it's a, a tutor or a teacher unto Christ. It tells us about the need for Christ, the, the perfection of Christ and the righteousness of God, even while it tells us of our own unrighteousness. So the law condemns. That's true. Uh, But we don't throw it away for that purpose because the condemnation is a merciful thing when it causes us to understand the depths of our sin and our need for a Savior. In fact, earlier in 2 Corinthians, Paul calls the law a ministry as well. That that it has a service or a role for the rest of mankind around us. A service for us. That word ministry in the Greek is diakonia. It's, it's the same root that we get the word deacon from. It, it serves us. It serves others. It has a, a profound benefit that it brings to the world. And so I want to build off that understanding this morning as we look at the ministry of reconciliation. That We have two ministries that, that, that we, we really are proponents of, that we're partakers of, and then also proclaimers of. There's the ministry of condemnation. That we bring the law of God because it, it is a mirror that shows them 
their imperfection and their need for Christ. And it also reflects the, the righteousness and holiness of God. But we also have the ministry of reconciliation. Without that ministry, um, this, gospel, or this law is not something merciful. It's something terrible and fearsome in our lives. But when they're used together, when you use the ministry of condemnation and then the ministry of reconciliation, the law is a wonderful thing. So if you would turn with me for a few minutes to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We're, kind of do, we're going to do a, a survey of this really to, to provide some context for where we started today. Um, and starting in verse 4. And as you turn there, I want to kind of lay out some of the, the immediate context of this. So Paul has just expressed confidence to the Corinthians um, that he and his fellow ministers are, as he puts it, the aroma, the pleasing aroma of Christ. That, that through Paul, God is spreading the fragrance of God, of the knowledge of God everywhere. Um, that they are commissioned by God. And that in the sight of God, they speak in Christ. So in short, Paul is, Paul is asserting here that God is pleased with him and God is pleased with his ministry. What a statement. You know, that would sound like such pride and arrogance the way we see it, um, the way we see it stated by so many apostles today. Um, but Paul is able to say this because he knows his message and his state before God did not originate or depend on him in any way. Paul is supremely confident that the message that he brought the Corinthians has resulted in salvation for many of its hearers. And it's in here in verse 4 that he states, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Paul, Paul's convinced his ministry is advancing the kingdom of God, even in the troubled Corinthian church. If, if you've ever read 1 Corinthians, you know there's a lot going on behind these statements. That Paul is, is actually making a defense of his own ministry, his own status as an apostle here, and a defense of the message of the gospel itself. And, and that's, that's actually something that's profoundly relevant to today. The Corinthian culture was much like ours. It was very hedonistic. It was very pagan. It was very sinful. And it was very self-reliant, individualistic. Um, so when Paul makes these statements... These false apostles, they're going to try to twist this around to be, to be that he's um, making himself out to be something more than he is. Um, but these statements from Paul, they really have nothing to do with Paul. They're, they're not self-confidence. It's not aggrandizement or delusions of grandeur. It's not pride. Um, he's not boasting about his own platform. He's not bragging about the talent of his home church or his missionary group. And in fact, it's really common, I think, today, even in proclamation from different churches, to hear the church name more than you hear Christ's name. Um, to hear the, the ministry talked about and what they've done more than what Christ has done, more than who Christ is. So Paul is, in a sense, boasting of this ministry because it's not his ministry. He's just been given it to take care of for a while. Um, Paul had received the gospel because of God. He'd been kicked off his horse, literally. Um, and he had trusted the gospel of Jesus because he, could, he had seen what it could do in the context of his own life. 
Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees, a student of the law, a teacher of the law, and he knew that the gospel could do everything that the law could not do. Um, and that is, that is um, a great summary of the glories of the gospel. But there's three, there's three qualities of the gospel that I want to point to here. And, and number one is that the gospel brings life. It is the only message that brings life. You look back in, in verse 5 and it says, Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So the moral law of the Lord is perfect. Psalm 19 tells us that. We've talked about it in our home groups this week, about the perfection of the Word, and that includes the law of God. It is perfect. And it is entirely sufficient for the purposes with which it has been given. Um, but the written code can only convict. It reveals our sin, but it can't take our sin away. It brings death to us in our flesh. And that really is what the ministry of condemnation is. It's the ministry of death. That's what Paul calls it um, in verse 7. The law defines sin, reveals sin, increases sin, but it's wholly unable to cleanse our sin. And the wages of that sin is death. So I'm, I'm reminded here, and I don't want to, I don't want to re-preach um, what what Justin covered last week. But it reminds me here of a scene from Pilgrim's Progress. I don't know if any of you, I'm sure many of you have read that. If you haven't, I, I think you should. But there's this scene where where Christian is in the house of the interpreter, um, and so it's an allegory. So Christian allegorically is a Christian. Um, the interpreter is the Holy Spirit. Puritans weren't really creative when it came to names, um, and, and the interpreter in this house is using these object lessons, these illustrations to teach Christian about the, the word, about, about the Bible. And there's this room that he brings him to. And it's covered in dust, these thick layers of dust from years of neglect and abandonment. Um, and he, he, the interpreter commands someone to come in and clean this room. And so he brings a broom and he starts sweeping. And all that happens is that the dust, this thick dust from years of neglect, is just flying around the room. And Christian is almost choked to death. But then the interpreter calls for a woman to come and bring water that she sprinkles over this dirt, this dust, and, and it's swept and cleaned away easily. And it's the same way with the law and gospel. So apart from the gospel, all the ministry of condemnation all the ministry of the letter does is stir up that sin in our hearts. It just brings it to the surface. It worsens our state and it kills us. But it's by contrast that the ministry of the Spirit, the gospel, brings us life. It is the water that cleanses the dust of our hearts. It's the righteousness that we needed to be reconciled to God and not merely condemned. Secondly, the gospel is permanent in its glory. So we read on here in verse 7 of chapter 3. It says, Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was a glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. So Jesus tells us in Matthew 5 that, that 
it, it essentially is easier for heaven and earth to pass away before the law of God passes away. That the law of God will not pass away until heaven and earth will pass away. But we know all of these things will pass away. They, they are long in our minds, but it's only a moment to God. The law is glorious in that it reflects the character of God as holy and just. But the new covenant also displays this holiness and justice upon the cross. The cross is the bridge between condemnation and reconciliation. And God displays in the new covenant his mercy, his love and compassion and grace on needy sinners. God displayed his handiwork on stone tablets in the law, but in, in the gospel he does so on human hearts. Gospel ministry establishes a kingdom that will have no end, a government that will have no end, that Christ is the ruler of, it tells us in Isaiah. And so unlike the gospel, which will be the theme of heaven's praises, that there won't be really a theme that's more advanced than what we're singing today about the cross, about the lamb. We'll sing that in heaven. But unlike the gospel, the law will no longer be needed in the new heaven and the new earth. The redeemed will be fully sanctified. They'll, they'll be made like Christ. There's, there's nothing left to perfect in them. They'll be presented as a bride that's spotless before Jesus. And the unrepentant sinner will be cast into judgment. There'll be no more conviction, only punishment, only torments for the stuff that he has already been convicted of. The law will serve its purpose and it, it actually will one day be rendered obsolete. As Hebrews 8 explains, and what I don't mean to say by that is that God's morality changes. He doesn't. He will be just as righteous 10,000 years from now on into eternity than he is at this moment. But the law will instead be written perfectly on our hearts and fulfilled in our, in our new bodies, our new creation. And there won't be a need for it externally as the letter to convict us. And so this God who dwells in unapproachable light will be seen face to face. Habakkuk says this, that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will fill the earth as waters cover the sea. Whereas the law showed the separation between God and man, the gospel tells us that God intends to dwell with us forever. The gospel is permanent in its application and it will be eternal in its remembrance. But the law is, is finite in its application and it will, the only parts of it that will last are, are the righteousness of God that it was meant to reflect. And, and so it's in this hope that, that we have a message that was delivered once for all the saints, that it doesn't change in content, that it'll be the same today as it is a hundred years from now, as it is a million years from now. The gospel will be the same and it's that confidence that, that Paul says here in um, oh, verse 12, he says, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who had put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. So when Moses would go up to the mountain to hear the words of God in, in Exodus 34, um, he would come down and he would deliver the words of God to the Israelites in his face after encountering God, just, just a little bit of God. Not, not, the, not the face of God, not the glory of God, but really the goodness of God is how it puts it. Um, his face is shining after having spent time with God and people are terrified of him 
But he would he would deliver the words of God and afterward he would put a veil on his face. He didn't do this because people were afraid of him. He, he would have done that before he gave them the words of God. He did it so that they would not see the glory of the Lord fade on his face. And it's this picture that Paul points to to say that the law was never meant to be eternal, that its ministry will come to an end. But Paul shifts the metaphor here in verse, in verse 14, and he says, But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. And this is really the, the third point of the, of the quality, the, the glories of the gospel. And that's that the gospel gives light where the law can only veil. The law can only conceal for a time. Um, the law cannot give anyone faith. It, it can convict of sin, sure. But, but it's the word of Christ that gives us faith. And so Paul says that just as Moses' veil kept the Israelites from seeing the glory of the Lord fade, so the blindness of an unregenerate heart, that, that veil because of sin and unbelief, it keeps a legalist from seeing the glory of the law, the law fade in light of the gospel. The law is meant to be a teacher unto Christ, and yet um, when we try to earn our own salvation, we try to make the law do what only Jesus can do. We, we try to make the law be our savior. In our sin, we cannot understand and we cannot see. We cling, ironically, to the very thing that brings us death or we reject it altogether and are condemned by it still. That is until God makes us alive in Christ. That, that when one turns to Christ, the veil is taken away. When we're born from above, as John 3 puts it, when our blind eyes are opened and our deaf ears hear, we gain access to God through Christ, not the law. Just as God tore the veil of the temple at Jesus' crucifixion from top to bottom, so Christ has done that with the veil of unbelief in our hearts. That He's taken this veil of unbelief and He's done what the law could not. He's given us clarity. He's allowed us to see His beauty. And it tells us here, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. When we truly see who Christ is, we are free we understand that Christ is the only cure for sin in our hearts. That there's nothing that we can do to help ourselves. That His finished work is enough on our behalf. We see the beauty of Christ and we are changed from beholding the glory of God. We're captivated by Christ. It's the Word of God in Christ that brings us light because it proclaims to us the coming of the light of the world. It instills in us, as, as verse 11 said, and um, as Paul was talking about this morning, a reverent fear of God. Not, not a fear of the punishment of God, but a fear that comes from knowing who God is and, and being reverent toward Him. It's the fear that's the beginning of wisdom. It's, it's only after we've received Christ that we can actually be taught the ways of the Lord. 
So the gospel gives us light and life that has no end. It's our only weapon against the darkness of the world. And it's the only antidote for our own darkened hearts. And so I can assure you, whether you're a preacher or a teacher of the Word of God, or whether you're a co-worker seeking to reach out to someone about Christ, whether you're a family member seeking to convert another family member, um, you have no better message than the simple gospel. There's no sort of church invite that will help them more than just telling them the gospel. Uh, there's no sort of, of testimony that will help them more than just telling them the gospel. The, the greatest, most irrefutable thing you have to tell someone is not your personal testimony. And I'm not, I'm not at all trying to undermine personal testimonies. They're a wonderful thing. I love hearing them. But I hear this all the time. Well, no one can take away your testimony. No one can take away the gospel. No one can refute the word of God. Your perception of what God has done in you may be accurate, but it might not. No one can refute the gospel, the plain statement of the truth of God, though many may try to change that. Many don't make plain statement of the truth today. And this is where I want to, if you just look at chapter 4 with me, starting in verse 1, this is what Paul says about distorting the gospel, either to make it more acceptable or more palatable to the world. He says, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So I would say that especially here in the West, and uh, I don't know how it is in, in, in Central America or in South America, but I know it's this way in North America, we've witnessed underhanded ways and cunning and tampering with God's Word to the gross extreme here in America. And especially with the advent of, of all this media that we have, really I would say 99% of the gospel presentations that we hear on a daily basis have nothing to do with the Word of God. We are the world's largest exporter of the word of faith and prosperity heresy to the rest of the world. And it has nothing to do with Trump's economy. Um, it, it is because we, we do not believe that the eternal blessings of Christ are worth anything. And so we bribe ungodly sinners with a mountain of possessions that all it amounts to is a hill of garbage compared to the worth of Christ. We hear... All sorts of testimonies of signs and wonders. People thinking they need to add some sort of authentication to the word of Christ than what God has done. God used signs and wonders to authenticate this message. There is no greater sign and wonder than the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Speaking in tongues does not authenticate this. 
Running around in the Spirit does not authenticate this. Visions and, and, and all sorts of miracles, growing out one leg to match the other, does not authenticate this. The resurrection of Christ authenticates the Gospel. Or we change the message itself. We add our words to it. One preacher ignores the grace of God or atoning work of Christ and, and preaches vague moralisms. That, that they satisfy the self-righteous among us and they crush and starve everyone else. Ten steps to a better message. Seven ways to be sexually pure. Another preacher preaches decisionism. I don't know if that's a word, but I'm going to go with it. Um, that there's, there's some sort of mechanical, scientific process by which we can know you're saved. That there's, there's, there's all these ministry growth models. And that if you plan your service a certain way and you, you raise your voice at the right points and you play the right songs at the right times, you'll get people to come down and you can walk them through a prayer and then you tell them that they're saved. All that does is weaken the faith of a young Christian who will come up every year and, and pray the same prayer and hope that they're saved. Or it gives false assurance to people that have no love for Christ at all. Another rejects the moral commands and requirements that Christ satisfies altogether and preaches some sort of universalism because a God of love would not punish anyone for something so small as sin. Some, and I would say this is the majority here, and I'm not meaning to lift up our church above anyone else. I'm confident not in our church. I'm confident in the Word of God, and that's why I'm saying these things. But I would say a large majority of the churches that we see in the West, they don't have any identifiable message at all. But the music sounds great, the coffee tastes good, and people smile at you when you walk in the door. But there's no urgency, there's no message. And I can tell you, if those people are too fearful to preach the Word of God from the pulpit, they can't expect their congregation to go share the Word of God. They can't expect their congregation to actually minister to people with the ministry of reconciliation. They probably don't know it themselves because there's been no open statement of the truth. I was listening to a sermon on Facebook the other day, which is always really dangerous. Um, I would encourage you not to get your main source of teaching. I mean, get it from the local church, but supplementary to that, maybe don't go to Facebook. Um, but it, it was a church, um, probably similar in size, similar in, in creed to us. I'm not going to say who it was or, or even what denomination. I don't think that would be beneficial. But I listened as the sermon progressed. And the whole, the whole video was on there. And the pastor was talking about the coming of Christ into the world. Um, and his purpose being um, people. And, and you know, I, it sounded okay. And so I was listening to it. And the sermon began to ramp up. And his, his tone began to change. And I was sitting on the edge of my seat, as it were, in my study. And I'm, I'm waiting for what the main point of his sermon is going to be. I mean, he reaches the crescendo of his sermon um, and this is what he says. This is verbatim. I'm not making this up. He says, this is the good news for the world that Jesus is into removing baggage. Baggage from past relationships, my emotional regret for decisions I've made. He said, this is the good news. Jesus is into removing baggage. And I'm leaning forward on my seat and I just sit back deflated. And I say, that's it? That's what you have for me? That's your good news? And Cam can probably tell you, I think I was yelling at the screen a moment later. Uh, but I was just thinking, no, no, you have a better message than that. 
You're a pastor in a church that's supposed to have a confession of faith. Maybe you can find it somewhere in there. You have a better message. You have the best message that has ever been given to the world. Sinners can be reconciled to a holy God. You can be forgiven of all your sin and adopted as a son or a daughter of Christ. You have a better message of that. And I can tell you, I praise God that He has done more for me than remove my baggage. He didn't take my baggage. He took my sin upon the cross. Every sin that I've committed. He took it upon Himself. Paul didn't write to Timothy and say, this statement is true and worthy of full acceptance. Jesus is into removing baggage. He said, Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. He said, for there is one God and one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself up as a ransom for us all. And it's this... It's this confidence that we have in the gospel and this status or this responsibility that we have as his ambassadors to make open statement of the truth because it's the world's only hope. Despite all the hardships or the oppositions you think you might um, encounter to certain truths, you must preach them, you must teach them, you must proclaim them. Even if the veiled minds and hearts of rebellious sinners reject it, um, that's not up to you. Their minds have been veiled by the God of this world under whose power they currently reside. But we preach these truths with confidence that the same God who said, let there be light and he gave light to the entire world is capable of bringing light to one soul, is capable of bringing the light of the glory of God to one soul that hears us. And I can tell you, this wasn't originally in my notes, but um, I think it applies still. If you have to hide certain doctrines or certain beliefs, certain things about the Christian faith, um, you don't believe them. You don't believe in their power. Listen, that's what the Mormons do. I don't know if you've ever met with a Mormon missionary, um, but you can't get them to talk about the exaltation of man within the first hour and a half that they're there. They won't tell you that they believe that a man and woman are sealed and married forever and that you can add wives as you do well. In heaven, They won't tell you those doctrines because they're ashamed of them. Because they know that they're crazy. In Scientology, they don't tell you that they believe there's an, there's a, uh, an alien named Xenu that's putting souls in all human bodies. They don't tell you that until you've invested a lot of time and a lot of money. And it's because they know that their doctrines aren't compelling. And if you have to hide a truth of the Christian faith, you're proving that you don't have any confidence in that either. And I've heard statements, and I'm not trying to pick apart any group or anything, but I hear this statement a lot, that we'll be known by what we're for, not what we're against. That we don't want to be characterized by everything about our faith, just the stuff that's viewed as positive to those outside. We don't want to be characterized by everything that God says about sin, just the ones that the ungodly people accept. If you have to hide truths of the Christian faith, you don't believe them and you're ashamed of them. And Christ says that if those who are ashamed of Him, who deny Him before men, He will deny them before the Father. We trust in Christ and His Word to do the work. Because we've been changed by it ourselves. Because we're partakers of it and we know what it can do. And we're set free to boldly preach the cross without any added wisdom from us 
without any added affectation or effort from us because we know that the gospel gives these things. Even in the face of, of stiff opposition and obstacles. So if you would turn with me back to the text that we started in, um, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, looking in verse 20. <clears throat> He says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listen to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So, so two words in this last little excerpt struck me in my study this week. If the message of reconciliation is so glorious, if it's everything that I've just told you it is, if it's such good news, if it's the best message that you have, why do appeals have to be made? Why, why is God making an appeal through us, a persuasion? Um, in other words, translated a begging. Um, why is Paul imploring the Corinthians, be reconciled to God? Why does Brother Brady have to go and plead with people on the street in Oklahoma City night after night and out at the clubs as people walk by and he says, be reconciled to God? Why aren't gospel-centered churches um, full of people out the door? Why isn't there a line of people lining up to hear the message of reconciliation? Why do I, why if I go to a non-believer and I say, good news, your sins can be forgiven, you can be reconciled to God. Why is that so often rejected? I would say more than often, um, more often than not rejected. It's because men and women, boys and girls, human beings love their sin. They love their sin. They're not just captivated by it. They love it. They're they're not just enslaved by it. They love it. They have an affection for it. They hate the gospel more than anything else in this world because they hate God and they love their sin. Romans 1 tells us this. It tells us they know who God is and His law and they've exchanged that truth about God um, for a lie. The gospel is what they hate most because it takes away what they most love. And that's their sin. They don't want to lose that. But yet, the gospel is also the only thing that can help them. It's, it's the only means and it's the best of all means by which God grants faith and saves sinners. It is the power of God and His salvation for all who believe. And so if, if the gospel in all of its glorious capabilities and qualities, everything that it is, all the power that it has, um, if that's the only thing that can help, if it must overcome hatred of God himself, there's, there's nothing extra you can add to that that will help. Anything that you think you need to add to the gospel will hinder the gospel. It won't help it. Um, but to close today, I, I want to talk about this because I think this is even more important than anything I've, I've preached so far today, and, and that's our second and I think primary motivation for preaching the Word of God. Without this second motivation, our conviction about the glorious nature of the gospel is meaningless. Regardless of how well we speak of the nature of the gospel, it's nothing but abstract 
theological ideas without a personal and radical experience of the reconciliation of God. We have to preach the gospel out of the love of Christ. The gospel applied to our own lives. And so it's, it's here in verse 14, back a little bit, that he says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who might live no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So Paul is driven, compelled, and the ESV translates it, controlled by the love of Christ to preach the gospel. Uh, and I think, you know, you could say in this text that it's Paul's love for Christ. And I think a point could be made there. But much stronger, and I think in keeping with the text, is, is Christ's love for Paul. The, the love that Paul has shown Christ. Paul has experienced the love of Christ for him. And because of that, he's concluded that Christ has died for all, therefore all have died. So for whose sake did Christ die? All that died in Christ. All those who live, it says, and no longer live for themselves, but for Christ. Christ has died for all, all who believe. This is one of those truths that you can preach in a way that's not untrue, but is by no means clear. And I don't want to do that here after just having preached against that. Christ died for his people. He died for his people. He didn't purchase savability. He purchased people. Christ is not re-sacrificed anytime someone believes. If someone believes, it is because Christ has died for them. Therefore, all that Christ has died for have died. I love the way MacArthur puts it. If Christ died for everybody generally, he died for nobody in particular. That's not the, the, the love of Christ that God has shown us. Paul is controlled by the love of Christ because Christ died for him. Christ took names to the cross. And if that seems unfair to you, I would urge you to go back and look at the treatment we've given of the law these past two weeks. That, that God is completely righteous and none of us deserve salvation. It is only the love of Christ that sets us apart to anything. Christ did not die a potential death. He died a real death for his people. Christ's atonement was perfect and he took names with him to the cross. He will glorify himself by saving his people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Their salvation is just as sure as yours is in Christ. And listen to me, if you think that takes away God's sovereignty and salvation, if you think that takes away the drive for evangelism, the drive for gospel preaching, it does take away the man-centered reasons for evangelism. But it does not take away the Christ-centered ones. We go because God has entrusted us with the ministry of reconciliation that He has shown to us, to the rest of His people, that we would bring more worshipers of God that He has marked out. And we don't know who they are. That's not our business. Our job is to proclaim the message of reconciliation. That's it. It's to steward the truths of the gospel. We cannot speak or preach meaningfully of the gospel until it has been applied to our own lives. And I can tell you, if you don't trust the gospel, the simple gospel to work in other people, 
Perhaps it's because you haven't trusted it in your own life. Because you don't trust those same truths for yourself. And this is the emphasis of Paul's appeal to the Corinthians in 20. Or 20. He says, you be reconciled to God. He's, he's writing this to a church with the implication there that not everyone there who has professed Christ is in Christ. Not because God has spurned their profession of faith, but because their profession of faith was fake. Because their profession of faith did not trust in Him, but trusting in their own works, their own goodness. And so there are two implications here for the two groups present in this room today. Because I think both groups are represented. I don't know who comprises each group, but I know that they're represented. If you are not in Christ... One thing should be made clear between last Sunday and today. Hopefully, help today, not hindered by today. You cannot earn your salvation. You cannot reconcile yourself to God. What are you trusting in for your reconciliation to God? Is it, is it a, an act of the will that you made? A decision that you made? Something that you do? Or is it Christ and His work on your behalf? You may feel burdened today. To preach the gospel because you know it is the right thing to do and your conscience is pricked by being silent, but nowhere in Scripture is that a motivation for evangelism. Nowhere in Scripture is that a motivation for any of the works of God. God doesn't need your duty. He's given you love. And we love because Christ has first loved us. Proselytizing out of duty is what the Mormons do to make their gods happy with them. It's what the Jehovah Witnesses do. They, they, take, they keep tallies of all that they've reached to because those tallies help them earn heaven. That's not what we do. We proclaim out of love, the love that we've experienced in Christ. We want others to know. We want others to experience. All that does is make their message or make the gospel look like dead ritualism. I'm sure you guys have seen those commercials where you have a celebrity or a paid spokesperson and they're, they're representing a product that it's obvious they've never used. Listen, we make fun of those commercials. All it does is it brings criticism and disdain upon that product and makes that product look cheap. But how much more so if you're trying to preach of a grace that you've never received, of a love that you've never experienced. It makes the gospel look cheap. And your profession of faith is cheap. You've never drank deeply from the well of satisfaction in Christ alone. You've spent no time with Jesus in His Word or communion with God in prayer. How winsomely can you tell others about a joy that you've never had? About a joy that you're, current, you're currently not experiencing? The law's ministry is effective. I don't mean to downplay that at all. And it makes one thing clear. It doesn't matter what you do for God. It's worthless if you are not in Christ. We don't evangelize to make God pleased with us. We proclaim the good news because of the pleasure we found in God. Your reconciliation to God would cost much more than you can pay. It required the substitutionary death of Christ. It says here in 21, for our sake, He made Him, meaning Christ, to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. 
Listen, if it requires the, the death of Christ, the Holy One, the only one who is worthy in heaven or on earth or under the earth, as Revelation 5 says, if God must offer his only son, everything you can offer pales in comparison. It's unnecessary. It's unneeded. It's unwanted. It's, it's an abomination to God. It's repulsive to him. You can say all the right things, do all the right things, go to all the church services. Listen, you can give 10% or 20% or 100% or become a member of a church or made a small group leader. You can be a deacon or an elder and have everyone's love and respect. You can walk a thousand aisles or make a million decisions for Christ. And you may be able to convince all of us a hundred times over that you are right with God, but you will never be able to fool God. What you are is known to God. There is no recourse for you before the all-powerful, all-present, all-knowing God of the universe. His word pierces to the heart and His law exposes you. You lay naked before Him and every one of your sins is remembered. Every one of your thoughts is heard by God. Every one of your desires is made plain. This, this word that Paul uses, that they're known to God, it talks about even the deepest intentions of the heart. Why you do the things that you do is known to God. Not just the things that you do. Why you do them. And why you do them matters to God. None of the works that would so impress us will appease God. The harder you try to be righteous, the more wicked you become. Because the more you try to be righteous, those are your most sinful deeds, is when you try to be righteous before God by your own power. You need His blood. Your blood is worthless. You need His righteousness. Your righteousness is worthless. You need His faith, not faith that you proclaim that you have. All of your works, all of your righteousness is just sin. And I would urge you today, turn from that. Repent of it. Despair of your own efforts and trust in Christ. He has offered all of this for you. What more could you do? What more could you add to the blood of Christ? If, if what you do at church, if what you do throughout the week, if that, if that is a salve for your conscience, if how you perceive God's favor towards you, fluctuates depending on what you've done that week. You don't understand God's love. Not fully. You may, you may have it, but you have yet to understand the depths of it. And this is the second group I want to talk about. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. You died to the law that condemned you. Your accuser, our enemy, has no more basis to make his claims. You are spotless. Listen, that, the, the, we, I don't think we've understood the glories of this verse. It says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus became sin for you. It doesn't mean that he became a sinner. He didn't sin. He lived a perfect life. But he was treated by God as if he was. Put another way, Jesus, God treated Jesus as if he had lived your life. That's what your life deserved on that cross. And much, much more. He paid in hours what you could not pay off in an eternity. 
And God treated Jesus as if he'd lived my life. Every sin of yours and mine is paid for so that we could be, it says, be his righteousness. We could be made his righteousness. There is a sense in which God treats you as if you are Christ. Put another way, God treats you as if you lived Christ's life. And I can tell you, Christian, if you are in Christ, if you truly are in Christ, if you're trusting in Him, God is pleased with you. That does not mean that God is pleased with all of your works by any, by any stretch of the imagination. But God is pleased with you. Am I overstating that? I think I understated it. God is infinitely pleased with you. Because you are in Christ and God is infinitely pleased with Christ. Think about that. How does God regard Christ? How does Christ regard himself? That is how you are treated in Christ. For the sake of Christ's name. Yes, you you must and you will bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You must set about the good works set apart for you. But whose works are they really? They were prepared before, for you before you were born. They're, they're only worked in you by the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Your outward good works are in one sense a side effect of what God is doing in you. The reconciliation of sinners, of us, is from beginning to end of God. The reconciliation of other sinners through us is from beginning to end of God. And that should be... Uh, an amazing, an amazingly freeing thing for us as we go into this next week and, and we proclaim the gospel to people we know hate God. But God's word is powerful and it's sharp and it's active. His plan was perfect. His law is perfect. The life of Christ was perfect. His atonement was perfect. His resurrection was perfect. His intercession for you right now is perfect. His work of reconciliation of of people from every tribe and nation will be perfect. And you will be made perfect if you're in Christ. There is really not much left for you to do. He has done it all and he will do it through us. And that's why we trust the gospel. And so I'm convinced, and I'm speaking to Christians here, um, that so much of the timidity or the fear the nervousness in the Christian life and ministry comes from misunderstanding, yes, the power of the gospel, but, but ultimately even more so the depth of God's love for you. God's love for you has one condition, and it's that you're in Christ. It has one condition that you be in Christ. His salvation for you has one condition that you be in Christ. None of that has anything to do with your own efforts. His favor is a small thing to give you compared to the Son. It's such a small thing. As Paul puts it in Romans 8, um, He who has not spared His own Son for us, how much more will He graciously not give us all things? His pleasure in you, on you, His favor on you, His work through you, in in the ministry of reconciliation, all of those things are small compared to what He already gave for you. His love is not the predication for your works or the predication for our ministry. It's the foundation of it. And it's the underlying conviction of gospel preaching and teaching. If you'd bow with me.
Father, I thank you for this day. Lord, I pray, God, that as a vessel of weakness, God, a jar of clay in which resides the gospel. Lord, that you would have used this this morning to bring some benefit to your saints, God, to save those here that are trusting in their own works. God, that you would glorify yourself in your name through the preaching of your word. God, you are always good. Your word endures forever. Your faithfulness to all generations. Lord, your redeeming love will be the theme of our praises for the rest of our lives. Jesus, we love you and we thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.